The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of our guests and hosts and do not reflect the views and opinions of any participants, employers, or the views of our funders. Fight well, my brother, don't forget your home. Return with victory, tell your woman all you know. And though you fight till you die, to keep worry from her mind. No, you do not fight alone, runs thick ass blood, not bone. Welcome to Season 2 of the Speak Freely Podcast, a show that brings veterans on to have tough conversations about the politics and policy issues that are dividing America. We're the show that brings on veterans to ask them the fundamental question, now that they've risked their lives and livelihoods and served this country, what is the change that they want to see and how the heck are we going to get there? I'm Andrew Pepler. And I'm Joy Turner. Thanks for joining us. Each episode this season will dive deep into one big topic with a central question that we'll try to answer. On today's episode, we're talking to six veterans from the University of Washington and asking them the central question. What are your dreams for the graduating class of 2019? While you're listening, don't forget to give us a review on iTunes and like and share us on Facebook and Twitter. It really helps us out a lot. Thanks and enjoy the show. So, Andrew, we're recording today for our season two finale. Hard Gosh. to believe another season has come and gone, but yes, indeed. And of course, we had to go out with a bang for this last one, which is why we partnered with the folks at UW to make this final episode of the season a special tribute to the veterans graduating with the class of 2019. Andrew, tell the folks how this episode came about. Well, I love today's topic because in some ways it's the most speak freely of all our episodes. As you'll remember, Joy, when we pitched the podcast, the Husky Seat Advisory Council two years ago, we said the show would incorporate elements of appreciative inquiry, specifically what are veterans' dreams for America? You know, just like what you say at the start of every episode, what is the change that they want to see? So with our season finale, we really get a chance to dive deep into that question and to find out from six veterans graduating this year, what are their wishes for the graduating class of 2019? Of course, I do uh, remember that pitch. And as cheesy as it sounds to want to hear about what veterans dream of for the future, I think at the end of the day, we all have ideas about what we want the world around us to look like. Yeah. So who was behind the camera for this episode? Well, given our topic today of commencement, we were able to collaborate with Dennis Wise and Jamie Swenson of the University of Washington Marketing and Communications team to record all our interviews on video and then use the audio from those interviews for the show itself. Really cool of them to do that, and we sincerely appreciate their support. Yes, thank you. And since I graduated last year, I didn't actually get to record anything. Sad, I know. But I did get a sneak peek of the footage. And Andrew, I see you got some screen time yourself. <laughs> I did. Uh, you know, Jamie couldn't resist putting me in the hot seat and asking me a few tough questions. And you did all right. Just all right? Yeah, just okay, okay. Oh. I wish I could have given you pointers, but I'm also awkward on screen. <laughs> But all kidding aside, I think each of our guests for this episode really brought something unique, and I loved hearing about how their experiences as veterans and students has informed their dreams for America and their words to the graduating class of 2019. Yeah, I had a lot of fun being on camera and interviewing our guests. So without further ado, we'll let them introduce themselves, sit back, and enjoy the show. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your name, where you're from, and your branch of service? Sure. I'm Skylar Brown from San Jose, California. I served for nine years and nine months as an Army officer uh, all over the South, pretty much. I got one major trip to Afghanistan and then other trips to Korea, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and a few other places while I was in the Army. 
My name is Jennifer Francis. I am from Cupertino, California, and I have been in the military since 2007, so a little bit over 11 years now, and I'm currently active duty Navy nurse. My name is David Coombs, served in the Marine Corps Reserves for six years, did one deployment seven months to Iraq in 2005, came back, got out in 2006. I'm from, originally from Texas. My dad was a in the Air Force, so as an Air Force brat, moved around a lot. So I'd say I'm from Eastern Washington. That's kind of where I, where we ended up, and then I've lived in Seattle for the last ten years or so. My name is Brian Young. I grew up in New York on Long Island, just east of New York City. I joined the military after high school, enlisted as an infantryman in the Army for five years. Got out in 2008, and then I went and got my undergraduate degree from University of Washington. I went into the consumer packaged goods industry from there, and then came back for my master's in business, where I've been the last two years. Yeah, my name is Andrew Pepler. I am from Pensacola, Florida, originally. I served for eight years on active duty and two years in the reserves in the U.S. Army uh, as an infantry officer. Uh, Robert A. White. I joined the military in the U.S. Army in 1997, served till September 2017, just a little bit over 20 years. Originally born in Mount Home Air Force Base, Idaho, but being a military brat, grew up just about basically everywhere overseas, multiple places in the United States. Um, coming from a lineage of those who served since the Civil War, it's just basically what I, was in my blood. And did you end up uh, deploying while you were? Yeah, just about everybody ends up deploying for myself. I had uh, two, multiple, two deployments to uh, Kuwait, multiple deployments. Uh, different ones overseas to like, you know, Southeast Asia, to Pacific areas. Uh, predominantly spent uh, my last part of my career in Pacific arena. Uh, so tell us about your any deployments overseas and, and what those were like. Yeah, so I had uh, three tours in Afghanistan. Once originally in 2007, I went over for 15 months, served in Paktika on the border with Pakistan. Uh, my second was in Wardak for six months. And then I went back a third time in 2012 to Kandahar uh, for a nine-month tour as a company commander. I went on the USNS Comfort in 2015. It was a six-month deployment, and we toured and um, provided medical and surgical aid to 11 different countries. Wow. Uh, which, uh, which were some of the, the highlight countries? Um, the highlight countries would be um, Honduras. It's beautiful. Um, the people were very appreciative of our assistance and our aid. And we also were able to um, get a view of the culture and explore around. Um, Jamaica also because we did a lot of partnerships with the nurses and the providers to understand how they provide assistance to their patients, and they also came aboard our ship to fully understand how we processed um, our equipments um, as I worked in sterilized receive department. And uh, do you have uh, family now? I do. Um, my husband, Joseph, is a wonderful, supportive, loving husband. Um, we've been married since 2008, and we have three beautiful girls, um, Paige, who's six, almost seven, um, Claire, who's five, and Grace, who is two. And a dog, Marley. He's eight. He's our firstborn. I do. 
I mean, my parents are still around, a couple brothers, and then I have my partner, and I have a son who's almost two years old. He's going to be two years in about two weeks now. Yeah, so I have a wife and two kids now, four-year-old and a two-year-old. Uh, didn't have any when I was in the military. Then I got out and met my wife out here in Washington and loving her ever since. I do have family now, uh, wife, Melly, and then two kids. And how'd you and Melly meet? We met in the Army, actually. Uh, we had a year-long trip to Korea. Uh, she was in Delta Battery, I was in Bravo Battery, and we got to know each other fairly well there, and we carried that relationship back to Fort Hood, and the rest is history. So other than meeting Melly, what was the best part about being in the military? I think I have two best parts of being in the military. I loved the amount of responsibility that we were trusted with. And I also love the camaraderie, being able to know for sure that the person to your left or to your right was 100% sold out and your success and the mission's success is a feeling that I still miss today. God, there's so many things. Um, well, I can first say that um, joining the military had a vision, but the best part was, has been, it's been extending me and pushing me to do more. Um, it's not just about doing my job, but it's about doing the best I can do with my job. Um, serving my peers, um, knowing people who have helped me become a better person, taking roles that I never thought I would, pushing me beyond my limits of what I can do. I remember when I first started as a nurse and within six months, they're like, you're gonna be a charge nurse. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just learning my role as um, a nurse itself, but becoming an officer and being um, a leading officer has been more than what I expected. <laughs> I think for me, the best part about being in the military was, was the people that you work with, kind of the camaraderie that you, that you share and the bonds that you build with other people. For me, it was unlike any other job that I had. I mean, you just get close to the people that you work with, especially if you're on an appointment with people. You spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week with them. Depend a lot on them, and that's just not something that you get outside of the military, really. Do you miss those folks that you serve with? I do. I do miss them quite a bit. I mean, I'm glad I'm out now for many reasons. <laughs> but uh, I definitely miss the, the friends that I had, keep in touch with some of them, but don't get to see them near as much as I, I wish that I could. That's yeah, such a great question because myself being in the military, growing up in it and seeing like what my family, my mom, my brother, my dad, like, everybody, like camaraderie, just being able to go to certain events and knowing that uh, those have come up shake, you know, my dad's hand, my mom's hand, thanking them. It was, you know, looking at them as my heroes and then being in that situation myself, um, being around the, my brothers and sisters in arms, um, being able to lead soldiers both as an enlisted as an officer, you know, that was truly leading, I think, was the greatest thing I could do in my career. And uh, do you miss it? <laughs> Yeah, that's such a, uh, as you probably even told, it's such a loaded question because yes, I do miss it. With missing it, I stay in touch with not just those that, you know, I served with, uh, those of my subordinates, you know, even peers and uh, those I work for. I continue my support in the community with veterans, uh, anywhere from, you know, working with employment, readiness, assistance, to just anything they need someone to talk to for mentorship. Yeah, so for me, it was definitely the opportunity to serve and lead my soldiers and uh, get to know the men under my command. I met so many people from across the entire country, from all different walks of life, 
uh, ethnicities, religions, uh, backgrounds. It was just an incredible uh, team environment. And uh, if any but he got a chance to play sports growing up. It was a lot like that, except it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week on one of the best possible teams that you could ever serve on. If I miss one thing, it's definitely the, the mission focus and the, the team camaraderie that, uh, that I experienced in the infantry. Uh, probably camaraderie, having like a bunch of guys that I would do anything for. Um, so just being able to really rely on people and trust somebody when they say they would do something. So I think that's probably one of the things I found a little bit outside of the military, but not as much as in the military. And what did you study here at the University of Washington? So here at the University of Washington, I had the opportunity as I was leaving the Army uh, to apply to the Evans School to their executive uh, master's of public administration. And it was just such an amazing program uh, that opened up my eyes for me. I studied uh, public administration with you, and then also did second master's in global health. My work in global health mostly focuses on nu nutrition, uh, mostly global malnutrition, undernutrition, uh, people who don't get enough food to eat or enough nutrients in their food. I focus a lot on uh, international development and agricultural policy at the Evans School. I'm graduating here in a couple weeks with a dual master's in public administration and business administration, so from the Evans School and the Foster School of Business. I was motivated to go back to school because I realized that uh, in order to get into management or senior management as a civilian, I really needed to build some additional skills on top of the leadership experience that I had in the military. And uh, UW was right in my backyard here in Seattle. I was working at Amazon at the time. I had access to the 9-11 uh, GI Bill. So it was really a, a no-brainer to come back to school and really invest in myself and, and try to build more skills to be successful in my career. So what motivated you to go back to school? I was motivated to go back to school after my experience on the USNS Comfort. We were on the ship and I was leading my department of sterilized receiving and um, the equipments were breaking down. I had to collaborate with a lot of personnel on the ship and I realized at that point that I need to strengthen my business acumen, have a better overview of the operations. After many years as a nurse, strengthening my nursing, my nursing skills, I realized that I could not rely on my nursing skills anymore and I had to go back to school and to push a different side of my nursing that I had never before. I knew that I was going to be leaving the Army and I wanted to be doing something that I was passionate about in the private sector. But in order to excel at that, I also knew that I didn't have the frameworks that would give me the best shot at fulfilling my potential as someone who is working in the private sector. So I ended up applying to business school and then becoming a business school student to build those frameworks and then sort of change my mindset from being an army officer to being someone who can do a very good job in a niche inside the private sector. I guess I just feel that, that with all the resources that we have in this world, um, the amount of money and, and development that we have, we'd certainly there's enough food to feed everybody in the world, so why is that not happening? Why are there people who don't have enough food, um, especially kids? I mean, there's so many kids in this country and outside of this country who just don't have access to the right kind of nutrition. Um, and then especially since I had a kid, uh, kind of made things hit more close to home for me. I mean, my kid is, is very privileged and obviously has enough food and, nu and nutrition he's well taken care of. I like to think so. 
But I mean, there's just so many kids out there that aren't, and that's just kind of the basic building blocks of life, of how you need to situate yourself in order to succeed in anything in life. Um, you need to start with adequate nutrition and adequate development. So you've now come back to campus twice, uh, mm -hmm. including undergrad and now with uh, the MBA. Yeah. But what was the hardest thing for you about coming back on campus after the military? Yeah, I think it was um, probably time management. So as an infantry enlisted guy, we were just told what to do, uh, where to be, be somewhere 15 minutes early to 15 minutes early kind of thing. Um, and so once I got out and I went to college, it was a lot harder to try to plan everything and make sure I was getting everything done. I got to sleep in until like 10 o'clock every day, which was awesome. Uh, but then also, I just had to find like an internal drive to move forward because otherwise it was, there was no one going to push me to achieve in college, so. For me, it, it was the culture shift. Uh, I was walking into a culture that I wasn't very familiar with since I'd been surrounded by military people for basically my entire adult life, counting my time at the military academy. And so just figuring out where the new lines were, what was cool, what wasn't, how to have the best, most effective communication with people, all of that stuff seemed like a very daunting task, especially coming out of you know serving for basically 10 years straight in the South and then being back on the West Coast. It was quite the learning curve for me. Was your classmate, I can tell you, I didn't really think that you struggled a whole lot with that, but. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad I kept it all up here. <laughs> well, first I was very excited. Um, but once I stepped on, I realized that the past decade I've been in this military culture and the language I was speaking is very different from my students. So being able to transfer my experiences on the military lingo was a little hurdle, but it wasn't long before my students, my, my classmates were um, just hands-on and wanting to learn more about my experiences and same for me to their experiences. Uh, oh man, that's a good question. Uh, for me, I mean, getting, getting, back into, getting back into school was a little challenging, but I had tried school actually before I joined the military and it didn't work out well for me at all. It was a disaster and I, I dropped out after half a quarter. And when I came back, actually, it was a lot different. I actually enjoyed school quite a bit more. I don't really feel like it was, it was overly challenging. I, I came back and my experiences in the military and, uh, and kind of the way I had grown in the six years uh, really prepared me well to, to go back to school and actually really enjoyed it a lot. I got this feeling like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is actually kind of enjoyable. I really like, like what I'm doing here. So I, yeah, I'd like to focus not really on the challenges, but on the benefits of, of joining the military and then going to school afterwards. So walking on campus, I think for me, the hardest thing would be um, 20 years military, coming out mid-30s, coming on a campus where most people, you know, are in their, their teenagers, you know, late teens, you know, early 20s, graduating, even graduate students in their mid-20s, and trying to find, like, where do I fit? in that identity. It is that an identity I need to fit in. But being in the executive program was, you know, where I needed to be, being with those who had 10 years plus of experience, um, those who already were continually working, and then being around them and having that new identity is actually uh, what made a great difference for me being on campus. 
Yeah, I, I felt old. <laughs> I, uh, I just, and not, not just in name, but also just in terms of life experience. 10 years of professional experience in the military and at Amazon prior to going back to grad school um, and two and a half hard years in Afghanistan. I just felt really tired and uh, just I felt like emotionally a lot older than a lot of my classmates. I like to play the game Where Were You on May 5th, 2007, which is the day that my boots first hit the ground in Afghanistan, which was a year to the day after I graduated undergrad. Uh, and um, I think it surprises a lot of people uh, because many of them were either just starting high school or weren't even in high school yet, some of my classmates. So yeah, I think the, the age gap, the experience gap was the biggest challenge for me to get over because I, I wanted to be able to relate with my classmates in some way and that was a real struggle for a number of years. And what's been your most rewarding experience as a student? Uh, I think the study tour I just did when I went to Jerusalem, it was just unbelievable to be able to go there and learn about other businesses overseas and how they deal with the situation, the geopolitical situation they're in. Coming from America, it's a lot harder. I think even being to Iraq and seeing the situation that they're in, it was like unbelievable of how much harder trying to do business could be than it would be in America, if that makes sense. What, uh, what type of companies did you see when you were in Israel? Uh, so we got to go see Google, uh, we got to go see Waze and talk to their number four employee which was just wild. It was really cool. He was, um, it was just a really cool dude talking about how they came up with the whole idea and how they put things into place. We got to go to a desalinization plant, which was really, really neat, seeing them just pump water out of the ocean and turn it into drinking water. And then, yeah, we got to go see the old city of Jerusalem. Um, we got to go see the Dead Sea and go floating. It was, it was just an incredible, I mean, everything you could hope to do in Israel was what we got to do. It was just fantastic. I'll have to pick two again. For me personally, it was going into the summer at Goldman and then finding that almost all of the classes that I'd taken here at Foster benefited me in some way as I was doing my job. Uh, whether that was working the yield curve for bonds or explaining to someone how they could more effectively market their own idea, uh, knowing that all of the work that I put in in the first year meant something in the summer was, was very powerful for me. And then from a community perspective, uh, when the first years came in and they had questions, maybe not about finance or, or anything that I had done, but questions in general, uh, being able to help them out and show them what our Husky culture is like and then watch them perform, uh, hopefully with some things that I've been helpful with, was uh, very rewarding for me. The most rewarding experience as a student at UW has been to pause and reflect on my experiences, um, my leadership abilities. One of our nursing corps values is um, being a transformational leader and being at Foster has taken that to another level. It's not just being about transformational leader, it's finding my authentic leadership and um, being able to have this time to figure out what drives me, what, what my values are, has been extremely rewarding. I think my most rewarding experience as a student was, you know, 
as you leave the military, you, you feel like you're going to lose that identity. Um, you know, the first week of foundations, we talk about transitions and what do transitions look like. And for myself, I was going through seven different transitions at the same time from leading military, family, medical, starting graduate school. And going to a place that I didn't expect many veterans to be at, and especially a public administration program. Most uh, of my peers are going to, to business school, and I was going the other route to public administration. So the most rewarding thing was being able to build that new identity with a cohort um, that was like-minded, that was able to accept me, and then build me up and understand, you know, help me with that transition. Most rewarding experiences? Uh... I'd say that I've been, I've been really fortunate. I've had a lot of really good experiences, a lot of really good opportunities in school. Um, I, I got to work with PATH on a nutrition project in Myanmar. I got to work as a research assistant in the, at the Evans School. Um, I got to work as an undergrad uh, in the biology department. I, I spent six months studying penguins in Argentina. So I've had all these opportunities uh, that first of all, wouldn't have probably been possible had I not joined the military had I had had I gone to my undergraduate straight from high school without any kind of experience. But for me, I guess the most rewarding opportunity is the through all that, all the all the mentors that I've had. Um, that so many people, the, the people that I worked for in, in biology or in public policy, um, the people who run these programs and these labs. <clears throat> um, just first of all, giving me the opportunity to work and, and gain some experience in all these, and just um, I mean, I, I've learned so much from them. Um, and I've had such good experience and felt so supported, uh, especially when I had my kid uh, after the first year of, my, of grad school. So it was kind of tough, a really tough transition. But the, the boss, the person I was working for, was really understanding, um, gave me as much time as I needed, had a really flexible schedule and just kind of supported me and, and kind of supported my development th throughout the rest of grad school. So I would say that the connections I made with the, the faculty and staff that I've worked with and then also the other students that I've worked with um, I just felt really supported and had a, had a really good, good atmosphere. So reflecting back a little bit on all of the life experience that you've had, both here in the States, in the military, in training, deploying overseas, this, this travel, this, this great experience that you also had in Israel and, and having gone back to school twice now, what is, the, what is the change that you've kind of seen in America over time? And can you reflect on that a little bit? I'm not sure if this is because I'm just older and I notice more of it now or if it's always been like this, but uh, it just becomes more polarized, uh, I think, with everything going on with, like, the Republicans and Democrats and fights over that. And uh, I think it was, like, maybe even more pronounced because I grew up in New York um, in a very conservative family, and then I joined the military, which is a very conservative place. Uh, more likely, or more often than not. Um, and then I came out to Washington, which is probably one of the most liberal places I could go. Um, and then I've been in colleges in this liberal town. Um, and so I've, I've been kind of all over the place with like my uh, political beliefs. And I feel like it's harder now to talk to somebody without getting into a fight than it used to be, where I used to be able to like talk about why I felt something or believed something. And now I feel like I'm like on pins and needles or like really uh, wary of telling somebody what I believe because I just know it might like ruin a relationship or a friendship um, or just make people like never want to talk to me again. So I feel like a lot, more, lot tougher now. And it might be because I, when I was younger, I didn't really care what people thought. And maybe now I do. So I don't know if that has a lot to do with it or uh, maybe I'm just wiser and I realize how much of a, uh, 
a dummy I was. I don't know. It's a it's an interesting transition though. So for me, um, I you know just had the terrible misfortune to get stationed in Italy initially, straight out of uh, school uh, as a 23 year old kid, um, and. Uh, and so my first two deployments were actually to Afghanistan from Italy. So I spent uh, the first three and a half years of my career overseas uh, between Europe and, and Afghanistan. And so the change for me was uh, stark coming back to the U.S. Um, you know, when I first left, we were still using a lot of email to communicate with one another. And then uh, when I came back, social media had just blown up completely and become something that I didn't even recognize. And we were just at the time still starting to see the beginnings of polarization. We were well past the uh, kind of uh, halcyon days, honeymoon after 9-11 after where it was all kumbaya and we were, uh, we were all, you know, one America again. And, uh, and that was, you know, with the invasion of Iraq and all of the divisiveness that occurred as a result of, of the, the fallout there, it was just a different country uh, when I came back. And there was the recession as well, which was a huge factor affecting people's income, their livelihood, their happiness on a daily basis. So it was really tough, actually, because I knew that I had gone to fight overseas for perhaps an idealized America that never existed in the first place. But at the same time, it was this thing in my head. And I came home to this incredibly divisive environment where people were at each other's throats and lacked a lot of empathy and sympathy for one another. And I felt like the war that I had fought overseas had, had come home to roost um, here in the States. And it was, it was really hard to, to, to grapple with. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's hard to kind of uh, separate the change that I see in America from the change that's happened to me in those 10 years. Or how much of that is America, is America actually changing? Or am I noticing the changes? Or am I just changing and seeing different things? I mean, you probably hear this a lot, but I feel like America is so much more divided now than it was 10 years ago. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing at this point. I don't know if it's just some people are kind of recognizing or some people's voices are being heard more that, that we're kind of raising these issues before or we're actually kind of splitting and, and I don't know what's really leading into that. I could blame social media or <laughs> all, sorts, all sorts of issues, but... Uh, yeah, I feel like it's divided, although I think in some ways that's good and in some ways that's a huge problem and, and we need to figure out some solutions to kind of bring people back together. So predominantly my first, you know, first 12 years of my life, I lived overseas and not knowing what it looked like here in the United States, I don't know what it looked like in America. Coming back to the U.S., I first stayed in Louisiana and I'll always remember uh, David Duke was running for governor. It was just such a contentious time in uh, the United States. And, and being multiracial, you know, my father being black, mom being white, it was just like, oh, this is like the norm. I expected that. And, you know, realizing truly what racism was and seeing it at, you know, 11 years old, it's just, you know, it's it definitely a smack in the face in understanding at such, you know, young age and realizing that I had been, you know, sheltered in other parts of the world. And then, you know, fast forward growing up over that next, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the military, it just coming back and forth, I expected things to change and realizing things haven't changed. It, it's still the same. Uh, there's still, it's just been hidden. Those same racial identities, uh, the contentiousness that we have in America, the divisiveness is still there, uh, regardless of, you know, as time goes on. If you had a magic wand and you could change whatever you wanted 
in the U.S., uh, what would you change and why? Yeah, I wrote that question and I'm, I'm struggling with how to answer it. But uh, for me, the one of the biggest problems that's facing the United States is income inequality. And I don't know that I would necessarily wave a magic wand and uh, give everybody the same salary because I consider myself somewhat left-leaning politically, but I don't know that I would completely abandon the capitalist system overnight. But, you know, that's some of my uh, old school sensibilities. But yeah, I mean, I think if I had a magic wand, I would in some way try to make our tax system more equitable in this country. I feel like that is a, a huge piece where we're seeing government agencies and departments that are essentially resource starved, um, where we could be doing the most good and affecting uh, children in early stage development, the poorest of the poor in the United States, and, and actually being the, the rising tide that lifts all boats and, and setting the example once again uh, to the rest of the world, um, that when we talk about being American, we, we mean that we're taking care of each other and that it's not just every man or every woman for themselves. Uh, we mean it when we say uh, that we are one nation indivisible um, and, uh, and that, we t that we take care of each other. Um, so yeah, I think uh, income inequality would be the first uh, issue that I tackle. Um, so if I had a magic wand in the US, uh, actually around the world, I would make sure that uh, all kids had access to the same kind of education. Um, and again, funding is just part of that. Obviously, there's things beyond funding that, that go into education, but at least we could start out with, as a society, deciding that we're going to fund every child's education the same. And then, oh, sorry, and my second one is I'm really interested in nutrition. So it's a huge problem both here in the U.S. and abroad around the world. Um, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing the number of children who are malnourished, uh, even in a country uh, like the U.S., where we have all these resources. Um, so I would invest more in nutrition programs. Try to make sure that uh, that no no child goes goes to bed hungry. Everybody gets enough food and the right kind of food, adequate, appropriate, culturally appropriate food. Um, I mean, that's a it's a big challenge. If I had a magic wand, I would just make that happen rather than worrying about what policies need to need to go into get put into place to actually make that a reality. Our society has been moving at a fast pace, and just being in business school, you're just seeing technology change and adapt and grow. It just it's fast. I mean, after having kids, I'm seeing society changing with that. Um, if I had a magic wand, I would hope that people would pause more. Um, really take a look at the people right next to you. Um, see from their perspective and how they're seeing the change um, to, be, to be able to understand um, what's going on with them and to understand the society around us. I think I'd want people just to be more empathetic and like understand, be just more willing, more willing to ask questions of each other. So being open to instead of like coming to conclusions, talking to people more and saying like, hey, you know, why do you think that? Um, I don't know if there's a way to like institute that with, even with a magic wand. You like change everybody's mind of like, you will ask more questions. Um, but I feel like I've, I've found that since I've been doing that, I come to understand people a little bit better and uh, try to like understand where they're coming from with their beliefs. Um, and that's been really helpful for me. So I'd love to be able to institute that somehow, which, I mean, that doesn't sound like it's feasible, but if I have a magic wand, I'll try.
I would ensure that everyone started placing a premium on the research of facts. Uh, I think that one of the things that makes America great is our diversity of opinions on literally everything. I think that's the only way you can have innovation in any direction. And I think that our adversaries and partisan folks from all walks of life actually use that against us to leverage our desire to have our biases confirmed with misinformation from time to time or misrepresented information. And any time that happens, it actually takes away from the value of the opinion or the outlook itself. And as I look around today, I see a lot of, you know, great outlooks that are marred by, you know, patent lies or patent third-party misinformation. And that makes it less likely that people who don't share that view will be able to take you seriously. So that's what I would change is I would have everyone start focusing on quality assurance, quality control on the information that they're putting out first so that these conversations that we're having that are extremely important, uh, in those conversations we can focus on the actual outlook rather than whether or not the, some, the thing that someone's telling me is, is true or false. Thinking through the, that question and realizing if my change happened, would I exist? And, and for me, that's such an existential question to answer because of uh, being multiracial, I believe I would go back and have slavery never happen. Um, how does that you know, affect America today you know, as we look at the you know, geopolitical situation, uh, looking at my little brother as he grows up, you know, a person of color with black skin uh, and the things he's gone through, and then looking at myself as a person of color with white skin and realizing that um, making that sacrifice and making that change would be would be something that's so important and dear to my heart, as well as to help America heal. If you could give a commencement speech for the class of 2019, what would you tell them? What do you hope they go on to do? Uh, since D-Day is coming up, and you know, you're a paratrooper out of the 173rd, <laughs> I did a few jumps in my day. I would say that your D-Day is here, and you know, it's time to jump. It's time to find out where your objective is when you hit the ground and, and go out and pursue that to the best of your ability. And while I say that, I will also say that, you know, maybe your objective isn't the one that everyone else is running towards and only you could figure that out. So um, it's up to us to find our objective and, and go and give 110% as we try to make it there and win. Um, one of the things that I've loved about the military and that I hope I brought to the foster community is to um, help your neighbors, um, take care of your shipmates, as we would say in the Navy. Um, we don't have enough of that nowadays. Um, and I think it's important to extend a helping hand to the person right next to you, um, to have that camaraderie and have that community. Um, so take every day to um, be able to give back to the person who helps you get somewhere further and your neighbors. Man, that's a big question. First of all, I would hate to give the commencement speech. I hate public speaking. <laughs> so I would say no, but if I had to be there, if I had to tell, tell people, thinking back on my, when I was talking about how divisive the country is, I think maybe one of the reasons and one of the good things about that is that today's 
youth or the, the young people growing up, and I guess it's not all young people that are graduating. I'm, I'm graduating too. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of optimism that people are pushing for a lot of social change that needs to be addressed that hasn't been talked about in a long time. Um, so I would just tell them to keep working on that. Don't, don't get jaded. I know it's kind of corny and cliche, but uh, keep some of that idealism as you go through life and, and keep working on those issues. I would tell them not to give up. I would tell them that they've got some incredibly hard days ahead of them and that the easiest day in their lives is today. <laughs> and, uh, and that they just need to lean on each other and, and support one another and that their friends are going to have their backs um, and that they're never alone. I hope what this class goes on to do is that they change the world and that they find the tallest mountain, find the biggest challenges, and go at them 150%. And that this generation is gonna be, in my opinion, hopefully, is gonna be the new greatest generation. We're gonna, we're gonna be the generation that solves climate change, that tackles all of these massive global issues and it's on us and it's on our shoulders and there's no need to, to blame anybody for where we're at right now or to, uh, to get down on ourselves. We've solved incredibly huge challenges as a human species and there's nothing that's in front of us right now that, uh, that isn't surmountable. So don't give up, don't quit, find the tallest mountain and keep on pushing. I think I'd wanna tell them that we're the future. Now it sounds like cliche, but like we're the ones that are going to take over from our parents. And so we're going to have to take care of the world that we're in as well as take care of them. Um, and so I think there's a lot of frustration on my part as well as a lot of other people's of like where we're at in the world and where we're going. Um, but I think it's something that we need to work on helping people kind of age gracefully because there's going to be a lot more older people throughout uh, our time um, as our population ages and then also uh, being willing to make big moves and big changes to try to stop tr climate change and keep the world around for our kids um, because there is changes there's a, a lot of issues that are come from it and if we don't make some changes we're gonna we're gonna deal with the consequences and our kids may not even be able to make those choices to deal with those consequences if we don't do something so I always, you know, think about this every time I've gone to commencements and watch people and speak and just wondering what are they going to tell us? Like, what's new that we're going to hear that, you know, always tell us go out and do great things, go out and change the world. And I always think, you know, that's, that's just such the question. That's what everybody tells us. But uh, being here at UW and taking some classes outside of my normal executive program, where I was actually taking classes with those who are in the full-time program and being, you know, the regular students, just seeing, like, the energy they have, just seeing where they want to go. And it's almost, you know, a little sense of like a naiveness, like they they want to change the world. And I don't, I think that's such a great thing that, you know, for them to want to go out there and have that energy that unfortunately that that's the best speech to give. And that's what I would tell them is, you know, you have that opportunity. Uh, you're the next generation coming up. You can make the changes for us, for your children. Um, because for us who are, you know, my age and generation for us, like our time is, Done. Like there's changes, you know, we can make an to an extent, but the world is yours. It's coming up next, and um, 
Along with that, I would tell them, get out there and vote, get out there and run for public office, get out there and make a difference in your community. Um, this is a country that was founded upon, you know, a community founded upon, you know, us making a difference, not just for ourselves, but each person within our community, each person in our state, each person in our identities. When you have that privilege to be able to make a difference, please don't squander it and take that opportunity to do so. Such amazing words from our guest. And I know for me, Robert's story about coming back home to America after being overseas for years and still feeling like an outsider really stuck with me and I think speaks to why he wants to see America change. Yeah, I thought Robert's comments especially were really poignant and personal, just like all of our guests we brought on the show over the last two years. And look, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we recorded these interviews before Memorial Day weekend, the same week that some misguided youth spray-painted an anarchist symbol and the hammer and sickle on the outside of Allen Library, accompanied by the words, America is an imperialist nation. You should be ashamed to serve. Wow. Yeah. I didn't actually know that happened until you told me about it. And it's crazy to think that that same contentiousness and divisiveness that existed for soldiers returning to America after World War II in Vietnam is ever-present, and I'd say just as vitriolic as ever. But free speech, right? Yeah. I think most vets would disagree with their sentiment, to be honest, but still fight for their right to say it. Yeah, and I mean, setting aside the stupidity of using those symbols together, I'm really proud we were able to conduct these interviews and get these student veterans' perspectives out there. You can say what you want about the military as an institution or service members' choices to serve, but on this show, we believe veterans have earned the right to have their voices heard through years of service and sacrifice. And when they speak freely in the future... We hope you're there to listen. It's certainly been a privilege to hear and amplify the voices of our brothers and sisters in arms while building this platform over the last two and a half years. And Andrew, it's been an honor and a pleasure to work with you. Likewise, Joy. Hopefully this <laughs> yeah. is uh, just a see you later and not a goodbye. But that's it for this season. To all our guests and our fans, thanks so much for your support. Keep an eye out for us on social media and check out the video version of this episode when you get the chance. Have a wonderful summer and stay safe. Speak Freely is recorded in Seattle, on location, and produced by Andrew Pepler and Joy Turner. Thanks to all our listeners who continue to support Speak Freely. We've completed our second season, and we couldn't have gotten this far without you. Our fantastic music was provided by the band Stubborn Son, who you can find on SoundCloud, Spotify, Facebook, and YouTube. You can download and listen to episodes of Speak Freely on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Speak Freely Podcast, all one word, or on Twitter at SPK underscore Freely. Thanks for tuning in. Speak Freely, out. Fight well, my brother. Don't forget your home. Return with victory. Tell your woman all you know. And though you fight till you die, to keep worry from her mind. No, you do not fight alone. Runs thick as blood, not bone.